In our last session, we saw that our spiritual call is identical with the call of Abraham. Going back to Abraham again, I'm going to look at his life briefly. God called him while he was in Ur of the Chaldeans and brought him to the land of Canaan. Upon arrival, he found himself in many difficulties. The Lord appeared to him, said many things, made promises and covenants. Abraham, through all the difficulties and experiences, got to know the Lord in a very deep way, reached the place of high position with God, which I will talk about it later in other sessions. And Abraham lived about 175 years, but he never came to his inheritance, and God did not give him a parcel of the land in Canaan. He is included in the group about whom the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, as I've been reading this verse, they all died in faith, not having received the promises. The question is, what was his life all about? There is only one answer to that question, and that was the birth of Isaac. His entire life that God worked in Abraham's life was because of Isaac to be born. Just that alone was the purpose of Abraham's life, and he was a true servant of the Lord, fulfilling God's call in his life. If that is true, Abraham has served God's purpose, then we can conclude that our service and our ministries are about sonship. And what is it? That sonship spiritually serves God's purpose in full. So what God is after is sonship. And Abraham's life entirely is for that purpose. And he did it by faith all the way to the end. Through that divine sonship, that is through Isaac, came our Lord Jesus. The New Testament traces of our Lord human ancestry back to Abraham, and that through Isaac. Ishmael could not have been the one. It's Isaac, the miracle child. Just that alone was the purpose of Abraham's life, and he was a true servant of the Lord, fulfilling God's call in his life. There are many things in Abraham's life, but one thing that stands out in his life, and we always associate with him, is his faith. The Lord said that he would give Abraham a son and told him that he would call his name Isaac. Isaac means to laugh. When God told Abraham and his wife Sarah that he's going to give him a son, Sarah laughed. Not that it was funny, but she laughed because it was impossible for them to have a child. God pushed this idea all the way to a point that naturally it was impossible for them to have a child. And God was testing Abraham in his faith, in his patience in this direction. And that's what God is doing with us. He brings us into situations, even when everything says it is impossible. And in all these, our faith goes through terrible tests in order to get to sonship. All I'm saying is that just like Abraham went through all that test, we too go through our test in our life when our faith is being tested. In our first meeting, I said, God called Abraham and his purpose was to begin a heavenly people on the basis of sonship. Abraham was the first one. God said to him, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that was to be realized through his son Isaac, a people of heavenly nature in terms of sonship. In Abraham's case, sonship started with Isaac. Isaac could not possibly be born naturally. And when he was born, Abraham was 99 years old and Sarah was just 10 years younger. Apostle Paul puts it this way. In Romans 4.19 he says, He, that is Abraham, considered his own body as good as dead. Yet Isaac was born. It was a miracle of God. And all the sons of God begin at that point. 
It is absolutely impossible to be son of God unless he works a miracle. Every child of God is a miracle. Nothing or no one can make you a child of God but the miracle of Spirit of God. Doing things Christians do, like going to church, even taking communion, will not make anybody a Christian. Being born again is what happens to us from within, and that's what God can do, and He is the only one. In Gospel of John, chapter 1, from verse 11, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So the beginning of the sonship is spiritual birth. You see, it was in Isaac that Abraham came to sonship. For Isaac represents the spirit of sonship in the New Testament. Here's Galatians 4 from verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Romans 9, 6, 8, Paul says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for there are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because there are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Hallelujah. What a deal God had through the spiritual seed of Abraham. Receiving the spirit of his son is a divine act. It's not a process. Once you become born again, you're born again. That's God's act. There's no process involved in it. That's when our sonship begins. Now, as born again, we begin to have a relationship with the Father for the first time. That is our Heavenly Father. For Abraham, there was a process leading up to the birth of Isaac. But when Isaac was born, he was not a process. He was a divine act. What I'm saying here is simply this. Just before you were born again, we were what the Bible calls dead towards the living God. But right after we're born again, we are what Bible calls alive towards living God. That's not a process. That's an experience. That's the experience of being born again. Very important to understand. Christian life begins with a miracle, and our very existence as Christians rests upon a supernatural ground. Most Christians do not understand this tremendous thing of the new birth. It's not clear to them. To become a child of God, it is not to call yourself Christian, but to have something done inside that only God can do. That is the beginning of sonship and Abraham's experience with Isaac. His son is the greatest illustration of this. You see, God took his time that it should be like that. In other words, impossibility for them to have a child naturally. God waited for that. And there is no substitution for that. That's when you're born again. That's how powerful that is. When we begin our spiritual life, God begins training us, the training of sons. The 12th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews deals with this. I want to read it for you. This is Hebrews 12. I will read from verse 7. It says, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, 
and scores every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there when the father does not chasten? I highlighted the words son, sons. See how many times he's speaking about sons. This is the relationship of a believer with the father. That's our sonship. That's the meaning of sonship. The word chastening just simply means child training. It means, of course, discipline, correcting, and sometimes using the rod. Proverbs 13, 24, it says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him properly. Basically, what he's saying is, as children of God, as God the Father, he says, what father doesn't discipline their children? And whatever he's doing with us is for a purpose. And the purpose is to get us to the adoption as sons. That's the main goal God has in his mind. The idea is to do anything and everything to make that child a responsible man or woman. To raise them as such that you don't have to constantly tell them what to do or not to do. Sort of not having intelligence in themselves. God does not protect his children from trouble, but he trains them so that they can go through difficulties. To develop in us a spirit of sonship, that is to develop spiritual intelligence. The greatest part of this phase of child training, which is our whole life here on earth, is to learn how to live on resurrection ground, knowing the power of his resurrection, which is the resurrection life. In the case of Isaac, and in the case of every child of God, The beginning is the resurrection. We have received a life which has already conquered death. That's the spirit that we have from the Lord. What God has given us has already that resurrection life in us. We have received a life which has already conquered death, and that is what Isaac stands for as a type. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. Isaac was virtually brought back from the dead. And his life, which he lived from that day onward, was a life which had triumphed over death. Same is true with every true child of God. By resurrection of Jesus Christ, every true child of God receives a life which has conquered death. A life which death has no power. That life is called eternal life in the New Testament. We begin like that and the rest of our lives becomes a process of learning resurrection life. Because spiritual resurrection is not only an experience at the beginning, but it is part of our entire life as Christians. What I just said, I'm going to take you to the parable of the prodigal son. This younger son was a child of God. I hope you read the parable. Those who are not familiar with it, that's what I said yesterday. Read these verses ahead of time for each session so you can be familiar with it if you're not an avid Bible reader. So the younger son was a child by birth. He had a claim to inheritance, and the father gave him. After he wasted all his inheritance that the father gave, we read that he lost everything. He had nothing to eat, and nobody gave him anything to eat. And then he was hired to feed the pigs. This parable says because he had nothing to eat, the food that these pigs were eating looked good to him. I don't know if you've ever seen a pig, how they eat. To me, pigs are one of the more dirtiest animals. Whatever you put in front of them, they will eat. Be it a newspaper in mud, they will eat. If that looked good to this younger son, I would say he sunk to the bottom of the barrel of his spiritual life. 
There's no further point going down past beyond it. But yet it says, just at that moment, when he came to his senses, that's not a coincidence for a child of God, because this younger son was the son of his father. This is a born-again believer. He's not a lost soul. He learned what father told him from the beginning, teaching him his word. And what happened to him when he came to his senses is what he had inside. He said to himself, the hired workers, they have enough to eat and to spare. He says, I will go back to him. I will say, Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer deserved to be called your son. Just hire me as one of your servants. When he came home from far, he saw his father. I want you to see from this parable that he's rehearsing this, what he's going to say to this father. And if he came to his father, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. Father interrupted him and he said, bring a new robe, bring a new ring and a new sandals. Let's give a party for this guy. I mean, every experience this younger son had coming home to his father, he never knew his father in that way. Even though it was his father, but he never knew him in this way. What happened? What happened to him going through that experience of virtual death and resurrection, his eyes were opened to see the father for the first time. It's the same father, but he never knew him like this. When he came home, his father gave him three things. A new robe, which is the token of rulership, kingship. I can take an hour to talk about that robe. He also gave him a new ring. This year, I spoke a message in the church about our authority in Christ. Very important message. I had this parable in mind when I shared it with you. If you want, you can listen to it. It's on our website. It's the token of our authority that from then on, this younger son could go anywhere representing the father. And he also gave him a new sandals, new shoes. Who doesn't like a new shoes? But what's the meaning of new shoes or new sandals in the Bible? For that, I want to take you to this little book in the Old Testament called Book of Ruth. The entire Book of Ruth is about our Lord Jesus being our kinsman redeemer. The word kinsman means our near relative. What that means is the principle or the law in the Old Testament is simply this. God, as powerful as he is, he could never save people because he's God. And this is based on the parameters and the boundary that he himself put according to his word. Since the word says sin came through one man, another man had to come for righteousness. God just couldn't say, okay, I forgive all of you. No, a man sinned, another man had to come for righteousness. That's why our Lord Jesus set aside his being God the Son, came and was born like one of us. When he became like one of us, even the book of Hebrews says, became lower than the angels, that's when he, as God, became our kinsman. That means our near relative, same level as us. Then he could save the people, of course, when they accept his sacrifice on the cross, and that's how everybody is safe. In this book, there's three characters. Boaz is one of them. Boaz represents the kinsman redeemer. He was the near relative of Naomi who lost his inheritance, his house and his property. And according to the Old Testament, he was the right of the near relative to redeem Naomi. And he had the right based on the law and he was willing to do it. 
But he came to Ruth and he said this. This is Ruth 4.12. He was willing to redeem Naomi, but this is what he said. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. There was another person who was a near relative of Naomi. And Boaz said to Ruth, I will talk to him tomorrow. So following day, he goes to the gate of the city. That closer relative comes. He basically said, you are the close relative. It is your right to redeem Naomi. And he said, fine, I'm willing to do it. But Boaz said, not only that, but you have to marry Ruth. So Naomi could have a descendant from her dead son. In that, he said, no, I can't. He had his reason. He said, I don't want to jeopardize my own inheritance. But Boaz said, I'm willing to do it. So that closer relative gave his right to Boaz to do it. And to make that transaction legal, this is what we read. In Ruth 4.7, now this was a custom in former times in Israel, considering redeeming and exchanging. Pay attention to these two words. Now, this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandals and gave it to the other. And thus, this was a confirmation of Israel. When our Lord Jesus became our kinsman redeemer, there's an exchange that took place. Our sins for his righteousness. This is confirmation of the giving the rights to another by taking his shoes off. Now, in the Old Testament, this is what God was telling them. When a man died without any descendants, this is what God told them. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to the stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. Basically, God is saying, when a man dies without having a descendants, the woman, the wife, should not marry with an outside the family. The brother had to marry him, have children until they have a son. All the children will belong to this brother, but the first son that was born took the name of the dead brother. And here's the law in the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy 25 from verse 7. But if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandals from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to a man who will not build up his brother's house. Verse 10, And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandals removed. I don't think this was a law. It's more like a rule. It was a profound thing to do to fulfill what God is saying here. Since the choice is given to the brother, that was the right thing to do. But sometimes they didn't want to. Why, you may ask? I can come up with at least half a dozen reasons. He just didn't like the way she looked. When you don't like somebody, you're liable to say anything you want. 
After all, she killed my brother. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, you know, thinking... Uh, there's many reasons why they wouldn't do it, but if they didn't want to, the first thing, they had to take their sandals off. When they took the sandals off, in the Bible, it means you took your rights as a redeemer, which you don't want to do, you give them to somebody else. That's what we read in the book of Ruth. In this parable, when the father gave him new shoes or new sandals, in order to put on the new one, he had to take up the old. He basically gave up his rights, whatever the rights he was standing on, in order to get the rights of the sonship. And I call these shoes, shoes of sonship. That's when he came to the level of understanding who his father was. That's the very important thing in this. Do you remember when Moses saw the burning bush for the first time? He went closer to see what was going on. And the first thing God says to him, do not approach. The land that you're standing on is a holy ground. I'm going to ask you, what is holy ground for God? Just think about it. It's the ground of his son. He will never accept any other ground except the ground of our Lord Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, God had to do something to bring this up. He says, take off your sandals. You're standing on the holy ground. You give up your rights, your rights to be on any ground. In order to stand before me, you have to stand on the ground of Christ. That's the holy ground. Same thing happened to Joshua when he saw the commander of the army of the Lord with the drawn sword. The commander said, take off your sandals. You're standing on the holy ground. They were standing on a false ground because one of them sinned and the entire Israel was put on hold. Take off your sandals, give up your rights, come on in the ground of my heavenly man. That's the holy ground. Remember what I said yesterday? God has prepared the heavenly man. He wants everyone to come on the ground of the heavenly man. And that's the only ground God ever accepted in the Old Testament even before he created this universe, all the way to the end of the Bible. There's only one ground, and that's the holy ground. When do we go in the presence of God? In our prayers. Apostle Paul says, go boldly in the presence of God and stand before him and present your prayers. Why do you think we can stand before God and pray? The only reason we can go there and not disappear is because we are standing on the holy ground in Christ. That's why he says, whatever you pray in my name, God will give it to you. Hallelujah. So, putting on the new shoes. In this parable, the new shoes represents how the father gave his son the rights of sonship. But the first thing younger son had to do was to remove his old shoes in order to put on his new shoes. And by removing his old shoes, he gave up his rights in order to receive the rights of sonship. As I told you, I'm calling these shoes, shoes of sonship. This parable Jesus spoke in Luke's chapter 15. The whole thing began when this Pharisee said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In this context that I was reading it, I said, hallelujah. He receives sinners. I was one of them. And he eats with them. Hallelujah. For this reason, because of their heartless comment, you know, I always looked at our, in our Orthodox religious apostolic churches, the priest as the Pharisees. 
To the Pharisees, Jesus says, you don't enter into the kingdom of heaven, nor you let others get in. That's what they're doing. They don't get in. They don't even let the rest of the people that come to the churches understand what is the way of salvation. So in order to answer them, he spoke three parables. First one was the lost sheep. I will read it for you. This is Luke 15 from verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. This is a lost sheep, lost soul. If one of them repents and comes to the Lord for the first time, that's the reason there's a joy in heaven. All the heaven rejoices because one sinner comes home to the Father. What is the Father figure here? He's the owner of humanity. That's the main point. And in this parable, the shepherd is the owner of humanity. And when one of them comes home, that's the rejoicing. What's the status of a lost sheep? His status is that distance from the shepherd, that distance from the owner of humanity. Second parable he spoke, I will read it for you. This is lost coin. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece of silver which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the same principle applies. Again, our Lord Jesus is talking about lost souls that come to him for the first time. The silver coins back then were part of the wedding gift to the bride. And they cherished it just like the women cherished their wedding band or the ring. 22nd of this month is our 50th anniversary. During these 50 years, there were times that my wife misplaced her ring, one of the bands or wedding ring. And I watched her put life on hold looking for that ring. <laughs> From time to time, she would come to me and say, oh, I can't find the ring. And here I am trying to comfort her. I would say, don't worry about it. If you don't find it, we'll buy one. Here I have 50 years, or I would like to call it, half a century experience under my belt as a husband. The thought that there could be a sentimental value attached to that ring never crosses my mind. I'm like, big deal. We'll get on the wrong. <laughs> you see what I mean? But our Lord Jesus, by saying this parable, not only brought this sensitive issue about women, not issue, sensitive thing about women, but at the center he's talking about the lost souls. This is something incredible for both of them that they come to the Lord for the first time. What's the status of the lost coin? In darkness, she had to light a lamp to look for it. The coin was in darkness. He said three parables. One of them doesn't have life, silver coin. 
The other one has a life. It's an animal life. You know, I enjoyed everything the Bible talks about, our relationship with the Lord as sheep and the shepherd. We all enjoy that. No problem. But still, in the example is the animal. But now you come to the third. It's the real deal. He's the son. He's not lost soul, but he's a son that grew up in the family. What's his status? What is his position? He's lost, just like the sheep, a great distance from the father. The parable says he went a far country. That distance between him and the father is where he was lost. He was in darkness, deceived by the enemy, thinking that there's life outside from God's house. Deceived by enemy being in the darkness. And the worst one, he was dead and he didn't know it. Twice in this parable, the father says, this my son was dead, but now he's alive again. This your brother was dead, now he's alive again. What is he saying? What kind of experience his son went through? Tell me. The son went through death and resurrection. This parable stands when we talk about death and resurrection. We're not talking about physical death, but a virtual one. This son went through a virtual death and resurrection. And through that experience, his eyes was opened to see his father for the first time. Hallelujah. This my son was dead and he's alive again. Coming to the older brother, he didn't like what the father did for his younger son. And he even said, you never gave me a goat that I have a party with my own friends. The fact is, in the beginning, when you read this parable, when the younger brother wanted his inheritance, this is what we read. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. This is Luke 15, 12. His father divided his livelihood among the two of them. And here this guy is saying, you never gave me a goat that I can marry with my friends. When I was reading that, I said, well, you want a goat? Get one yourself. <laughs> you got your inheritance. What do you want? But that's not his problem. He still has that mentality of serving the father as a hired worker. He is there where his younger brother was before he went to the far country, before he had all that experience. Mentality of a hired servant. It makes a big difference to serve the father as a hired servant or as a son. You know, Moses is one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament. I mean, for Jews, he's the one. There's no doubt about it how good he was. Everything about Moses is great. Letter to Hebrews, speaking about Moses, he says he was faithful over God's house as a servant. But when he's speaking about our Lord Jesus, he said he's faithful as a son whose house we are if we keep our faith all the way to the end. Serving the Father as a son makes all the difference. That's when your eyes are open, you see the Father for the first time, just as this younger son saw. Everything was new. The kingship, authority, and rights of the sonship. This is the phase of a child training, which begins with the birth from above and lasts all of our lives here on earth. The next thing I was going to say is what the apostle calls the manifestation of the sons of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, this is what we read. For I consider that the sacrifices of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. 
For the earnest expectations of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Boy, I love this verse. The whole creation is waiting for the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Paul says this universe is in a very bad shape. It's groaning and traveling in pain. God has a purpose which is hidden in the history of this world, hidden from the eyes of an understanding of men. People of this world will never, never know what God is doing. And what is he doing now? He's securing sons. The world will never know who the sons are, but the very world is waiting for the redemption manifestation of the sons of God. Man, that just blows you apart. Then what happens? The whole creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. What is this thing for which the whole creation is waiting for? You tell me. The revealing of the sons of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the full meaning of sonship. We shall be like him, sons of God. Amen? Amen. This is something enormous. It's way over my head. Just like I said yesterday, it is so enormous that I cannot even wrap my head around it. That the possibility for us believers in Christ to become to this stage and become sons of God, that even the whole creation is waiting for them to appear and for them to come out of their bondage. But all the potentiality of a believer come to this point of adoption is there. Everything is there because you're standing on the holy ground, which is the ground and the only ground that God accepts from humanity. And we know it as his own. We know it. We understand it. I'll stop here. I'll pray and commit the rest of this day into his hands. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for today and all the words and everything that you're revealing to us, Lord. I, for one, I'm excited, Lord. I have no words to describe how excited I am. The fact that you're speaking to us, your own, by opening our ears and eyes to see and understand. Hallelujah. How privileged we are that we can understand. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us our spiritual food. Bless you, Lord. As your own, we say we love you and we thank you, Lord. I also want to pray for lunch you are about to receive, Lord. As always, we thank you for the physical food that you provide. We bless you and we thank you. We pray that it will be for our nourishment for our body. And, and also we thank you for the spiritual food that you always give. I commit the rest of this day and the sessions uh, that we have into your hands. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus, amen.